Hi, welcome to the CVJ podcast on the best of equine surgery. I'm Celia Marr, editor of Equine Veterinary Journal. This podcast is one of three based on British Equine Veterinary Association's scientific review of 2014. The scientific review was presented at Beaver Congress in September, and three panellists select the most important and interesting papers published in the last year. The panellists choose from all journals and they're not limited to EVJ, although EVJ is very well represented. In this podcast, the selection of important papers on equine surgery has been made by Lewis Smith, diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Surgery, based at Rostales Equine Hospital and Diagnostic Centre. At the end of the podcast, we will provide details of the papers which have just been discussed, so that you can find the papers if you want to read more detail. Colic surgery in um, 2014. Uh, the first paper I chose to review was um, this one, which had 53 horses. It uh, appeared in a, uh, veterinary surgery and was published by um, the group out of the University of Georgia. They had 53 horses, and they looked at um, horses needing uh, resection and anastomosis, and they tried to compare horses which had uh, single layer and double layer, either jejuno iliostomy or jejuno jejuno ostomy, um, so end to end. And um, what they really found is they didn't get too many differences uh, between them, apart from they had a higher incidence of postoperative colic in jejuno iliostomies. Um, so Really, they found that it didn't... But the suture pattern that you use, um, they didn't actually find any significant difference between them. Um, again, then the University of, um, um, University of Pennsylvania, um, they had, from the New Bolton Center, they had a very similar study, but this time with 112 horses, and they compared uh, end-to-end uh, jejuno-jejunoostomies, uh, jejuno-iliostomies, and jejuno-seekostomies, um, and they had um, se- several different suture patterns. They had uh, single-layer Lemberts, uh, double-layer with an outer inverting pattern, either Lembert or Cushing, and uh, double-layer appositional. And um, then they also had um, jejunosicostomies. Um, about a, thir- a third of them um, were um, jejunosicostomies. Um, and what they found is that the um, jejunosicostomies um, were um, had more postoperative problems, um, but they found that jejunosicostomies uh, and um, had less postoperative incidence of colic than the um, jejunoiliostomies. Um, so, taking these two papers together. Um, one can conclude that um, jejunosicostomies, um, they did find that they had more problems um, when they anastomosed um, the jejunum onto the cecum um, than when they did a jejunoiliostomy. So I think we can conclude, um, as has been published several times before, but it just reinforces the fact that if one can do a jejunoiliostomy, um, one is um, better off doing that. And um, But... Um, I, you would. Exp- um, they did find both papers found that they had more post- post-operative colics with jejunoiliostomy. Um, the other interesting thing um, was um, both papers found that there was no difference in the time uh, that it took 
um, to do any of the suture patterns which were investigated. And it's something, you know, um, especially me sort of, you know, starting to do uh, quite a few of these now, you sort of obsess a little bit, well, should I do this pattern, should I do that pattern? But they actually found that, um, you know, there was no significant differences in time and there was no significant differences um, in um, their outcome. But um, the, the one thing that the New Bolton stu study said, which is something I, I normally do a single-layer Lambert, um, but they did um, a two-layer appositional suture, and um, they said that you have to be less precise when you place your bites. So that might be something uh, sort of worth uh, to consider. And also, especially if you're doing a um, jejuno uh, ileostomy, when the ilium is, is thicker, I hope that projects okay, um, but when the ilium is, is slightly thicker, um, it, it's sometimes easier just to do an appositional layer rather than trying to get everything into invert. And, you know, sometimes with that thick tissue, um, it can be difficult to, to just technically to get everything to invert. Um, the next um, two papers um, that I um, had were um, two very interesting um, papers looking at colic surgery and return to racing after um, colic surgery. And, again, uh, Relatively, they're both published in JAVMA. Um, the first one's Chino, um, um, Chino Valley Equine, and uh, the second one is New Bolton Center, again. And um, they had similar numbers of horses, 85 in the first and uh, um, 59. And they found that um, around 70 to 75% of these horses returned to racing postoperatively. And so uh, very interesting that you get two um, papers published um, sort of in, in similar time frames, which had, you know, relatively um, s similar outcomes. And I think this is just a useful sort of tip to have at your fingertips to, to be able to say to someone who's got a racehorse undergoing colic surgery, well, you know, we'd expect 70% to 70-75% um, um, of these horses to return to racing. And also, when they looked at um, match controls for the same yard, which had problems, they found that there's no significant difference between those horses and the horses which are returning after colic surgery. So, um, you know, generally, um, the prognosis for um, returning to racing after um, um, colic surgery is pretty good. On to uh, respiratory surgery in uh, 2014. And uh, the next paper I'd like to just um, bring to your attention is this one published in Veterinary Surgery, um, in May of this year, and uh, this looked at horses with dorsal pharyngeal collapse um, associated with um, uh, head flexion. And the paper is um, um, quite an interesting paper. They had nine horses. Uh, they evaluated them at exercise, not dynamically. They didn't do a dynamic endoscopy, but they, uh, um, they just uh, sort of looked at them ridden. They then did endoscopy, and then they flexed the head. And uh, these were horses where um, the, uh, when the head flexion occurred, um, the dorsal pharynx um, collapsed. And um, so they also did radiography at different head positions, sort of confirmed the diagnosis. And um, then what they did is um, they um, did a um, guttural pouch fenestration and uh, resection of the plica salpingopharyngeus. Um, and with the, with the thought that somehow with neck flexion it was occluding um, um, the opening to the guttural pouches and causing excessive air or something to build up and cause the dorsopharyngeal collapse. Um, now, the paper is actually written by um, several medicine specialists, and, um, you know, 
we um so i i emailed them because it was it was it was slightly scant on the actual technical details and part of the reason why that is is because they've just published it in this german language um uh paper and it's it's exactly the same technique that they use for foals um but um um the guys from hanover being very helpful have also um published uh, are publishing an english language version of the uh, of the text, which appears in um, which will appear in December 2014, but they um, very nice, very kindly sent me a couple of photos of uh, uh, from the book and uh, describing I- exactly what they did. And um, the reason why I mean I don't see a great deal of these, but I, I don't have a very good treatment for dorsal pharyngeal collapse in in general. And um, so here's a horse which has dorsal pharyngeal collapse at exercise. Um, you can see, um, but it just got me wondering whether this may be a surgical technique that we can use in these cases, because although I've uh, tried um, just trying to laser the, um, um, the sort of soft, the caudal soft palate and, and rostral and caudal um, pharynx, it, it doesn't really work very well. So, um, yeah, that's just um, um, something to think about. Now, um, the next um, series of papers are really two papers published by the Edinburgh Group and um, a colleague um, who I now work with, um, Timothy Barnett, um, where they looked at um, horses which, um, for all intents and purposes, were um, asymptomatic after um, um, laryngoplasty, or, or they, they, they may or may not have been, but they, didn't, they weren't actually presented to um, the, the clinic for, um, for a problem. They just went out and followed up uh, their horses and uh, looked at them after um, exercising, um, um, in, uh, looked at them after laryngoplasty um, and um, uh, um, under um, um, So anyway, they um, they they followed up 89 percent, um, 89 of their horses, and uh, 41 of which um, 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 underwent exercise. Um, and um, interestingly, um, they found um, um, uh, some problems with horses. Um, so yeah, they um, um, and they found they sort of found three main things. Um, they found uh, dorsal displacement of um, of the soft palate, either at low speeds or um, in this case um, permanently. And these are these are the study horses that um, Tim Barnett has um, uh, very kindly lent me. Um, they found um, esophageal regurgitation, um, as you can see in this uh, top corner here. And uh, they found that horses also had uh, axial deviation of the aeroepiglottic folds. Um, no, so um, not all of these horses had overground endoscopy um, prior um, to receiving the tie back, but um, they did feel that um, these uh, problems 
um, seem to be related um, to um, um, be related to the um, tieback to the rengoplasty. So um, the other thing is, I mean, I, I think um, this paper here has just been accepted and um, has not actually been published, but it is available on the EVJ website. Um, but there's now a, a growing body of evidence, uh, five papers here just published recently, the problems that we get um, following uh, laryngoplasty. That said, uh, you know, um, although there were problems in these horses, um, there was still an overall good level of owner satisfaction. But it, it is just the case that the more you look for problems, the more you do find them. And um, this uh, Australian paper that's uh, um, uh, only been accepted so far is very interesting because it, um, it repeats uh, most of the findings um, found by the Edinburgh group. Um, this um, was just a case report of two horses um, published in Equine Veterinary Journal. And uh, I just really included it because it's got such uh, lovely pictures of intraluminal suture. And um, what they managed to do um, with these is actually, um, because the um, lumen, um, the suture material was um, poking into the lumen of the airway, um, they were able to remove the, uh, the, prostate, or the implant standing. So, um, and then um, the horse actually, once they'd um, taken it out with just the bronchoesophageal forceps and some uh, endoscopically guided uh, scissors, um, then they were able to get complete resolution so uh, a quite nifty little case report that uh, um, with um, some very nice pictures associated with it. And uh, this did sort of remind me very much of um, uh, Rossingles um, presented this year at ECVS, um, his technique for um, standing laryngoplasty. So not only are people able to remove the implants, they're all also able to um, put them in. So he um, um, first started this on, on draft horses, and this um, is a waiting publication, I'm told, but uh, um, uh, isn't included actually strictly in, in the year. But um, he, he did a few on draft horses and then now has um, uh, performed it on 96 cases, um, doing um, standing laryngoplasty. And uh, for, uh, for me, it was just such an inspirational sort of thing. Um, that, uh, you know, he's uh, really sort of pushing the boundaries there and just to make the sort of audience aware that, uh, of what we can do now standing. Um, and again, dovetailing with that um, is another, um, moving on to orthopaedic surgery, is um, David Frisbee from um, the um, um, Colorado State University. He has um, published this paper um, using um, performing diagnostic stifle joint arthroscopy um, in a standing horse using, um, uh, I think it's 18-gauge uh, uh, needle arthros um, arthroscope. Um, so um, he puts the um, horses in um, a uh, Kimsey splint um, or uh, altered Kimsey splint like this and then um, he uh, is able to get the horse to stand with flexion, um, and then he's able to perform um, a fairly good um, um, diagnostic arthroscopy. Now, the EVJ paper, um, which was published, um, only, I think, had three um, um, cases in it um, as a sort of proof of, of concept type thing. But then he did update um, um, his findings at ECVS um, um, Copenhagen 
uh, in 2014, and he's now um, performed the uh, procedure in over uh, 100 joints. He found uh, no morbidity associated with the technique, and he um, uh, reports that he can now prepare them in, in uh, 30 minutes with four minutes to examine um, each joint. Um, he puts um, um, local anesthesia into the joint prior to introducing the arthroscope, um, and doesn't use an egress cannula, so it doesn't lavage the fluids through in, in, uh, in, in the typical way, but um, is able to get um, sort of a pretty good um, diagnostic arthroscopy. Now, you do have to buy one of these uh, needle scopes, and they are um, uh, sort of semi-flexible, but um, and um, I'm not aware of any ones which will just um, sort of go into a regular stack that... Uh, uh, people may have um, back at their practices at home, so you do have to um, go. But these are designed for um, f um, for human orthopedists um, just to do um, small um, diagnostic arthroscopies as almost an outpatient um, procedure. And just the final paper I uh, wanted to talk about was um, this one from uh, Newmarket Equine Hospital. Um, they examined um, 120 uh, thoroughbred uh, racehorses with um, first phalangeal fractures. They found, uh, interestingly, a, um, a seasonal distribution uh, very similar to um, the Condola paper that they published um, um, that I think Ben Jacklin was uh, involved in that they published before. So a seasonal distribution fitting with the, um, um, the amount of training that goes on in Newmarket. But I think um, the really nice thing about uh, a good paper is it does tell you um, um, something where you sort of recognize it yourself, but um, when you actually read it in the literature, you think, yes, I mean, we recognize that, and I can't believe no one's um, written it up before. So um, these are um, um, paper, um, pictures from the paper where radiographs um, taken immediately after the horse has sustained a fracture sometimes underestimate um, 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 the degree of pathology. And um, this was uh, just one of my cases which I was looking after um, as uh, in my guises of uh, uh, being a racing vet as well um, um, in Newmarket, uh, where, you know, they're definitely the, we look like we've got a fairly straightforward fracture, but then um, when you uh, radiograph it several months down the line, you realise that it's actually much more complex um, but although this looks fairly scary, the horse by this stage was sort of fairly sound and uh, um, is now back racing. So um, in conclusions, um, um, what have I learned? Well, um, really, I mean, this is not exactly that novel, but it's just been reinforced um, that um, if, if, one ha if one's doing a small intestinal resection and anastomosis, a jejunoiliostomy is always going to be preferential to a jejunosecostomy, uh, and it doesn't really matter which pattern one uses as long as, as, long as you're quick. So, um, um, I, I mean, uh, I've, I've taken from that that uh, I'll just use the pattern which I can perform um, the most uh, quickly and easily, and that the prognosis for returning to function uh, following colic surgery is ever climbing. Um, and um, um, the conclusions on the orthopedic and respiratory side, well, the future is coming and it looks like it will be performed standing. Um, you know, there's been descriptions now of standing arthroscopy, uh, fracture repair, and even laryngoplasty. Um, and 
Um, but with the laryngoplasty, the more we look for complications of the procedure, um, the more there are. However, I um, should emphasise that this doesn't preclude um, owner satisfaction. Um, the horses in the um, Edinburgh study um, had a good overall level of um, satisfaction with the outcomes. Um, so I'd like to entertain, entertain any questions. Thanks very much, uh, Lewis, for that. That was a tremendous sort of walk through a, a real variety of, of surgical um, papers in different parts of the body. Um, thanks very much. That was fantastic and kept fantastically to time, including some sterling uh, improvisation during uh, IT issues. So can I ask, uh, if there are any questions from the floor, please can you wait for a mic to come? And when the mic comes, could you please uh, say who you are and where you're from? Yep, up the back. So. Lewis, excellent job. But I can't resist making a few comments, if you don't mind. No, 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 no problem, David. <laughs> uh, first of all, for me, I much prefer to do a jejunocecostomy than a jejunoileostomy. And I think that, you know, the jejunocecostomy's got a bad name, but at the risk of sounding arrogant, I, I think that there are a lot of mistakes made with the way the surgery is done. And, you know, you and I have talked about that before. So I think if it's done well, I think it outperforms the jejunoileostomy by quite a bit. Um, and I think the complication rate with the jejunoileostomy in the New Bolton Center paper is unacceptable. That was a high rate of postoperative reflux, a high rate, I think, of repeat ciliotomies. So even though the survival rate wasn't different, that was... Uh, that uh, prevalence of postoperative complications is not acceptable, I don't think. And um, I think the pattern you use is important. Um, I think every surgeon should use whatever pattern he or she feels comfortable with. But having said that, I strongly believe in an interrupted pattern that gives you as big a lumen as you can get. And that's the critical uh, the critical feature of whatever anastomosis you use must be. And um, wh why, David, do you think that the um, um, that these uh, jejuno ileostomies are also uh, prone to um, um, to postoperative colic? I mean, um, you know, in, in simple terms, I, I know there's the the, the paper. Um, I think it was Barry Edwards uh, wrote up um, about the end um, arterial supply but I mean it doesn't I mean in the ones that I've opened up or not had success with you know um, they don't seem to have actually a vascular compromise, um, compromise associated with it I mean it seems to be more of a sort of functional thing um, but uh, yeah what, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's functional and, and anatomic sometimes the uh, you know the ileum when it contracts down gets kind of angry I mean it looks like uh, you know, a large Polish sausage. You know, it doesn't look like a piece of bowel. The lumen is not as open. It's, it, it can be anatomically difficult to, to get a nice... It, that's not always the case, but it can be to get a nice apposition. I, any attempt at inversion is not going to work because the bowel wall is so thick, you'll end up inverting way too much. And it is a functionally different segment of small intestine than the jejunum. It... And that's been demonstrated. Mike Ross showed this many, many years ago at New Bolton Center. It is functionally different to the small intestine and maybe more closely coupled in function to the cecum 
than to the small intestine. So it's not receiving the same neurologic inputs or myoelectrical inputs as the small intestine. It's just a, they're just not supposed to be together in my opinion. And it's nothing to do with vascular. Yeah. It's just a poor marriage. It's, it's nothing to do with the vascular side of it. It's just two functionally anat and uh, anatomically different segments. Thank you. Okay, are there any other questions from the floor? Saf. Sophia Barrett, so from China House. Um, I was just wondering, because I haven't read many papers this year, but the, uh, the mini-stifle arthroscopy, some of those views, it looked like they did have instrumentation in there. How much can you get in? How much can you take out? Yeah, so, um, so um, I should have pointed out, actually, the, the one um, picture on the paper with the, um, with the probe in, um, they actually anesthetized that horse then and uh, placed a probe in. But um, they... Um, they are um, from from what he said at ECVS. Um, David Frisby reports that um, it's very good for um, diagnostic purposes, but he still um, knocks them out. But um, it's very well tailored to his way of working. Um, he works at, uh, mainly um, out of the back of a, a massive truck in um, at horse shows, and so um, he can put them into the stocks in in his truck, um, do this procedure. Um, you know, give the owners, um, you know, they're obviously at the, um, at the show, it's high-pressure situation, give the owners a diagnosis, and then um, they also do simultaneous, uh, his wife's an ultrasonographer, and they also do um, simultaneous ultrasonography, um, get, uh, get a diagnosis for their client, and then if they need to do anything surgically arthroscopy, then they normally um, take it back and and, and do it in the equine hospital and and uh, and, and and knock the horse out. So, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, um, it's a it's a wonderful tool for diagnosis. But just like with uh, um, just like with um, you know the the first papers on on carpal arthroscopy, where people were just using it for diagnosis, I'm sure you know eventually it will evolve on into sort of surgical techniques. But um, depending on how much weight the horse is actually taking on its leg does um, uh, adapt to how much of the condyle you can see. And, um, yeah, but it's uh, yeah, an, an interesting uh, report. Great. Thank you very much. That concludes this Scientific Review podcast. I'm now going to give a summary of the papers reviewed by Lewis. There are no declarations from the authors. Starting off with colic surgery, the first paper was titled A Retrospective Study Comparing the Outcome of Horses undergoing small intestinal resection and anastomosis with a single layer, Lambert, or double layer, simple continuous and Cushing technique. By Close et al, published in Veterinary Surgery, 2014, volume 43, pages 471 to 478. The second was titled Comparison of short and long-term complications and survival following jejunojejunostomy, jejunoileostomy, and jejunosecostomy in 112 horses, 2005 to 2010, by Stuart et al., published in the Equine Veterinary Journal, 2014, volume 46, pages 333 to 338. 
The third was titled Evaluation of Racing Performance After Colic Surgery in Thoroughbreds, 85 Cases, 1996-2010, by Tomlinson et al., published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, 2013, Volume 243, Number 4. The fourth was titled Impact of Colic Surgery on Return to Function in Racing Thoroughbreds, 59 Cases, 1996-2009, by Hart et al., published in the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, 2014, Volume 244, Number 2. Moving on to respiratory surgery. The first was titled Transendoscopic Laser Surgery to Correct Nasopharyngeal Obstruction Caused by Head Flexion in Horses by Barton et al. Published in Veterinary Surgery, 2014, Volume 43, pages 418 to 424. The second paper was titled Long-Term Exercising Video Endoscopic Examination of the Upper Airway Following Laryngoplasty Surgery a prospective cross-sectional study of 41 horses by Barnett et al., published in the Equine Veterinary Journal, 2013, volume 45, pages 593 to 597. The third paper was titled Characterization of Palatal Dysfunction After Laryngoplasty by Barnett et al., published in the Equine Veterinary Journal, Volume 46, 2014, pages 60 to 63. The fourth paper was titled Exercising Video Endoscopic Evaluation of 45 Horses with Respiratory Noise and or Poor Performance After Laryngoplasty by David et al, published in Veterinary Surgery, 2010, volume 39, pages 942, to 948. The fifth paper was titled Retrospective Study Investigating Causes of Abnormal Respiratory Noise in Horses Following Prosthetic Laryngoplasty by Compostella et al. Published in the Equine Veterinary Journal 2012, Volume 44, Supplement 43, pages 27 to 30. The sixth paper was titled Dynamic Respiratory Endoscopic Findings Pre and Post Laryngoplasty in Thoroughbred Racehorses by Luton and Lumsden, published in the Equine Veterinary Journal 2014, online. The seventh paper was titled Laryngeal Fistula Formation After Laryngoplasty in Two Warm Blood Mares by Bynett Zeit et al., published in Equine Veterinary Education. 2014, Volume 26, Issue 2, pages 88 to 92. And finally, on to orthopaedic surgery. The first paper is titled Diagnostic Stifle Joint Arthroscopy Using a Needle Arthroscope in Standing Horses by Frisbee et al. Published in Veterinary Surgery, 2014, Volume 43, pages 12 to 18. The second paper is titled Radiographic Configuration and Healing of 121 Fractures 
of the proximal phalanx in 120 thoroughbred racehorses, 2007 to 2011, by Smith and Wright, published in the Equine Veterinary Journal, 2014, volume 46, pages 81 to 87.